we'll try to pick up then where we left off in the last 50 minutes or the last hour. So the question comes up. There's no doubt that we need atonement because the word atonement occurs too many times in the Old Testament and uh, it occurs in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I believe it's in the fifth chapter of, of Romans where the Apostle Paul says, we have received the atonement. <clears throat> what then requires atonement? One problem which exists between amended and unamended uh, doctrine is that on the unamended side it is said that the atonement covers only one thing. That the atonement is to forgive your personal sins and that it goes no further than this. And I have a number of booklets that came that have come out from the amended brotherhood that stresses this. You will find it stressed over and over in the Andrew Roberts debate. However, uh, when uh, the book Law of Moses was written, Brother Roberts tried to correct himself and get himself back on track. Because prior to the time of the debate, Brother Roberts had taught the same truth about the atonement that, that uh, Brother Andrews had taught and that the unamended hold to this day. But it began to be taught after the debate by those who did not accept the uh, correction that Brother Roberts made in the Law of Moses. And you will find, incidentally, a discrepancy between his answers to Brother Roberts in the debate and what he wrote in the Law of Moses. And I might even have opportunity to bring a few of those out. I have Law of Moses here before me. But the question is this. In receiving the atonement, or we might put it today, in going through the waters of baptism, is all that occurs the forgiveness of our personal sins? I can't go right to it. I've got the debate laying here too. But one of the questions which Brother Andrew asked Brother Roberts, well, it had to do with, he said, in the waters of baptism, do we not receive atonement for sin flesh? And the answer that he got was, why, Brother Andrew? The Scriptures say almost nothing about that. This is what we're going to try to do in the next hour, is to see whether the Scriptures say anything about a need for atonement that goes above and beyond the forgiveness of our personal sins. We agree that's included, but does it stop with the aspect of personal sins? I'd like you to turn, while I look up something in the Law of Moses, to Leviticus, the 16th chapter. Brother Roberts called attention to this truth several times in the Law of Moses, and uh, especially as he is dealing with the uh, uh, subject of uh, the burnt offering. In Leviticus 16 and 16, God is giving the uh, instruction for the construction of the Ark of the Covenant and the uh, the instruction for the tabernacle, the holy place, and the most holy, and so forth. Now notice a, an aspect of a need for atonement that really hammers home the truth. 
God says to Moses through his angel on Sinai, He shall make an atonement for the holy place. What? This was something that had never sinned. How could a tabernacle with furnishings need atonement if atonement is only for personal sin? Well, the truth should be really uh, becoming an enlightening thing when someone reads this if they are of the opinion that atonement is for personal sin only. Why, here was, here was a tabernacle, a building with furnishings that needed atonement. My goodness, what for? He shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Is that all? For the uncleanness of the children of Israel and a conjunction, speaking of a second or further thing, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of all of their transgressions, in all of their sins. Somewhere I've got another transparency. It, it really doesn't matter because I can get by with it. One you see up there, if I don't find it, and it looks like I'm not going to. But there are two things which the Old Testament shows that renders one unclean, unacceptable, not only anyone, but anything that contracts or contacts uncleanness in any shape, form, or fashion must have an atonement before it can first either make contact, preliminary contact, with the holy things representing the things in Christ, or if a person has already made contact with them. The Old Testament showed that any time uncleanness of any kind was contacted or contracted by anyone or anything, an atonement must be realized before one can resume contact with the things in Christ. So, Brother Robert says, and he's, he's, he refers to this passage over and over again, but I want you to listen to what he says concerning the burnt offering. You know there was not one ordinance, not one provision in the Old Testament order of things by which a person could receive atonement by any way other than the blood that came from an animal that had lost its life. You go to the sin offering, the trespass offering, or the burnt offering, and you will find that to receive atonement, and that was the only way in the Old Testament times that atonement could be realized, was by the burnt offering. Why? What happened when that offering was consumed by fire? It was the destruction, symbolically, of sin flesh. What happens when we undergo baptism? I'm just showing the analogy between the Old Testament order of things and the oracles of God and the New Testament. The destruction of sin flesh is there in both instances. In the Old Testament time, it was shown by the death of the animal from which the atoning blood was taken. In our time, God has given us a system which requires totally a symbolic death and not a literal death. It's true that the Old Testament death was symbolic, but it was a literal death of a lamb or some other animal, depending upon the occasion for which the offering was being made. A literal death was necessary in order to signify the future death of Christ in order to attain atonement. Now, there were other instances, for instance, circumcision 
which brought one under the covenant. It was the seal of the covenant of righteousness which Abraham had before uh, he received the seal of circumcision. But to receive atonement, the death of an animal had to take place. All right, it was burnt if it had to do with sin's flesh. In the New Testament, how do we get the death, I mean the destruction of sin's flesh, out of baptism? Turn back very quickly. This is too important uh, not to take note of. Turn to Romans 6 again. See, I'll stop with verse 5 showing, when I was showing that... uh, uh, resurrection was assured to those who had been planted together in the likeness of Christ's death. <laughs> Let's start that again, beginning with verse 3, and get the connection. He says, Know ye not that as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall, as the Greek literally reads, we shall be of resurrection. Knowing this, now here is our key verse. Uh, It's it's the key verse in connection with what we're talking about now, the atonement, Uh, uh, destruction of sin and flesh. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. There's your destruction of sin's flesh. And it happens in baptism. Paul connects it with the ritual here. The rite of baptism is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because this was what was required. The rest was automatic when he went this far. He was... He was buried, he died, he buried, was buried, and was raised again, and automatically immortalized subsequently because he had done his part. He said at the time he gave up the spirit or life, it is finished. And he had finished all that he'd come to do. So consequently, in the act of baptism, symbolically it happens exactly the same thing that happened when the offering, the burnt offering was burnt. You know... Fire in symbolism is a symbol of the Spirit. There are several symbols of the Spirit. Water is one symbol of the Spirit. Word. The fire of the Spirit is something we read of quite often. And it refers to sin flesh consumed by the fire of the Spirit. That is what the burnt offering symbolized. The destruction of sin flesh in representation of the future immortalization of Christ. And finally... Uh, the immortalization of every worthy creature as sin disappears from the earth. So the destruction of sin flesh is actually the end result of all that God is doing. And Christ was the first fruits of this. So His being the first death, burial, and resurrection, which resulted in the total destruction of sin flesh and that there was no longer sin in His flesh once He was immortalized, then that is, I'll continue in a moment. And so that is what is meant by our baptism. It's the destruction of sin flesh at the very time when we receive forgiveness for our personal sins and at the time that we receive atonement for the defilement that we contract by inheriting the death-doomed nature that we receive from our first parents who sinned in Eden. 
Let's see what Brother Robert says about this. Just before, this is on page uh, 237 of uh, the current edition. Speaking of three kinds of atonements, I mean uh, offerings, they were, one, the burnt offering, secondly, the sin offering, which was sin of ignorance and so forth, and then trespass offering, the most common form of, of uh, sin. He says concerning these three offerings on page 237, all were for atonement, three. Now wait, he's not talking about forgiveness of personal sins here. You see how he's trying to... He realized that in the debate, he had himself fallen into the very error that he himself had been fighting in 1873 against the renunciationist theory, which was the very theory that uh, his followers began to teach after the debate because of the position he took in the debate. And I can prove this to you. I can take you to right in the debate to various uh, answers that he gave which placed him in the very position that he fought so hard for so many years. But Brother Andrew was a fierce debater. And while he made a few, a very few errors that I, I didn't agree with, I've got to say the brother was very sound in what he set forth. And uh, in order to give up his proposition, unfortunately, Brother Roberts gave some answers that placed himself in a very unfortunate condition that caused later followers of himself to teach what we now call the clean flesh theory. Okay, he says all of these three atonements, I mean offerings, were for atonement. But atonement for different degrees of sin, as we might express it. There was a form of sin for which there was no atonement. And to prove this, he quotes, The soul that die, that doth aught presumptuously, willingly and uh, presumptuously, reproaches the Lord. That soul shall be cut off from among his people. Because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that soul shall utterly be cut off. There was no provision for uh, uh, passing over this with a sacrifice. But he says the common case was not sin of presumption, but sin of, listen, sin of natural state. You say that to an unamended brother today and watch the explosion. Brother Roberts had no trouble with it. He came, he came back after the debate and said it. It was necessary because the brother realized the importance of this doctrine that had to be retained. And he came back almost on target. I can show you one place that he didn't come quite all the way back on because of something he had said in the debate. And it's unfortunate because we would have been 100% on the unamended position had he come back on this one final thing. And that was on what all baptism actually covers. But I can show you that he teaches it other, in other places. There's one page in this book where he denies that truth, but he teaches it almost everywhere else. The common case was wait, wait, a state of natural uh, was natural state and sin of ignorance and sin of weakness. The first, the constitutional uncleanness. There's another no-no today. Don't say that we're unclean, especially in the sense of Christ. You know, the very last document that our committee was able to hammer out with those brethren stated on two different pages an outright contradiction. And I called this to one of the brothers' attention and I was told on the phone by him the other day that that has now been rectified, that those two pages now harmonize. But the very first page of that last agreement that was hammered out said, we will cease from using 
the degrading phrases clean and unclean flesh when it comes to the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then you know what they do on page 3? They say that as a result of Adam's sin, we, not Christ, but we, all are defiled and we're unclean. And then in the next paragraph they say that He was a partaker of all of the effects that came from Adam's sin. Now imagine, don't use that terminology concerning Christ. It's all right concerning us and then turn around and say that He suffered all of it. And you say that there is no tendency to teach clean flesh? Wow. The first constitutional uncleanness that has come into the world by sin, which is no more I do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Works that have come from the central source in the last... 40 years now say, and I have one from 1958, Brother Gerald, well I have it in my case over here. It's called the Unity Book from Australia. This truth that I am hammering home today is lost in Australia. It's lost in England. Christadelphia, including those who were formerly unamended, now teach that baptism, or at least accept and do not uh, stand against the teaching that I'm about to propound as the error that has been accepted. It is now taught by those who are allowed to teach anything on it that baptism is for personal sin only, except on the American continent. Do you know that this is the one continent left in the world, the entire world, where this truth is permitted to be taught? And if we agree for the sake of unity, and I long for unity, I hurt for unity, but only on an acceptable basis. And if we give this up, then we'll be fulfilled the words of Christ in Luke 18 and 8. God will avenge His elect speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man shall return, shall He scarcely find faith. If we give it up and vote for unity without a retention of this truth, this twofold need for atonement, then we have assisted in the casting down of the truth to the ground, which the uh, eighth chapter of Daniel prophesied would happen by the little horn, uh, the Roman Empire, and that religious system that came out of it, will again in our day. And I'm, I know that I'm not going to get to this return to Babylon that I had spoke of earlier that uh, prophecy called for. Did you know that from the time of the apostasy of Israel and even before that, down to our time, the warfare has been uh, uh, concerning false and true doctrine. It has been on the one hand the doctrine of Babylon versus the doctrine of Jerusalem. Uh, oh, how many passages could we advance to show that Jerusalem is the place that God chose to put His name there. The oracles that He gave in the law had in mind the place of sacrifice, which was at Jerusalem. The opposing doctrine, that which began at Babylon and is commemorated by the setting up of the Christmas tree and the painting of Easter eggs, and oh, how I'd love to get into this, but I don't dare and I don't have the time. It is still... Babylon versus Jerusalem. And is it any surprise to you as you get into the, I believe it's the third chapter of the Revelation, that the very fourth letter to the Ecclesias called attention to the woman Jezebel, 
Go back to First Kings and see what Jezebel did. She taught the Israelites. They had they had learned it before, but God had uh, uh, through His prophets managed uh, through some righteous kings to get things back on track. What did Jezebel do? She brought the uh, worship of the goddess Ashtoreth. Easter, notice the similarity. The, the Easter practices was to this goddess Semiramis, who was a queen of Babylon, the wife of Nimrod. Is it any, don't we need to stop and wonder in that fourth letter to the Ecclesias in Revelation why he says, You have there that woman Jezebel? Jezebel taught Israel to worship in the manner of the Babylonians. Did you know that the New Testament church turned to that same thing in symbol? And that's what that fourth letter is talking about. Christianity adopted, and gee, I have right here a portion, some photostats from Moshiach, to show that there was a, a marriage, as it were, of the, the practices and doctrines of Christianity as they were mixed with the pagans so that they could attract the pagans to, the pagans to Christianity. You see the pattern? The pattern is, let's, let's, let's make our doctrine seem like it's saying the same thing so we can all get together. And this can happen in reunion efforts if we're not careful. And we once again can be taught... Uh, to commit spiritual fornication uh, if we give up pure truth in order to uh, marry our doctrine with that which is untrue. Marry the, the uh, uh, doctrine of Jerusalem to the doctrine of Babylon. Okay, I'm taking a long time to get through uh, what Brother Robert said, but uh, these things, I wish we had uh, about a week to go through this because there are many, many aspects that really need emphasis. Okay, he said, it is no more sin that dwelleth in me. And what I, what I got off in the beginning to speak about, now in the Unity book, it says, and I forget the page number, that we should never preach sin in the flesh because it's a word that is metonymy. In other words, it's a figure of speech. There's none there, really. Well, brothers and sisters, I ask you to take a copy, and I've got it in my case over there if any of you want to see it after a while. In the amended, and I stress, in the amended statement of faith under doctrines to be rejected, I believe it's principle number 37 says that one of the doctrines to be rejected is that there is no sin in the flesh. But their books today says there is no sin in the flesh. Uh, the Lagos from Australia recently has said there's no such thing as sin in the flesh. It's used metonymically. But this is clean flesh, any way you cut it. But Brother Roberts said, It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Romans 7 and 20. The second uh, manner of uh, atonement uh, or offering, he says, is where men do wrong without knowing it. Well, let's get on down to the burnt offering since that is what we're interested in. He said the burnt offering was burnt holy on the altar. Leviticus 1, verses 8 through 9, where you get the instructions for that. It was left to smolder all night into ashes. And the ashes were removed in the morning. It was called the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto morning. And this is in Leviticus 6 and 9. It was an act of worship. Now notice very carefully. It was an act of worship on the part of a mortal being apart from guilt of specific offense. 
Thus Noah, saved from the destruction by the flood, took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Genesis 8 and 20. Thus also the test of Abraham's faith was to offer Isaac for burnt offering. Genesis 22 and 2. That burnt offering should be required in the absence of a particular offense shows, now notice, I hope you'll take down page number 237 and ponder this. That burnt offering should be required in the absence of particular offense shows that our unclean state as the death-doomed children of Adam itself, this fact, he says, unfits us for approach to the deity apart from recognition and acknowledgement of what the burnt offering was the form required and supplied. Now, we come to the waters of baptism. We know we're going to be forgiven our personal sins, but we, we can't accept that on that teaching regarding our unclean state as the death-doomed children of Adam. And Proposition 5 of both amended and unamended statements of faith say this, that the sentence that was passed upon Adam defiled and became a physical law of his being. So both statements of faith, when it was formulated, had in view that we have a defiled condition. So as we stand there at the water's edge, uh, we only believe that we're going to get forgiveness for our personal sin if we're, un if we're amended. Well, now, wait a minute. Brother Roberts just said, and I read it to you, that without something which represents the destruction of this unclean, physical, death-doomed children of Adam body, there is no approach to the deity. Then can you tell me in view of the admission the brother made how you're going to approach the deity just by getting your sins forgiven if you've got an unclean body? I submit to you that any time, and this is, uh, we need to establish this. Let's go back to chapter 12 of Leviticus. One of the very strong points, they think it is a strong point, that is being hammered home in this last decade from uh, the southern portion of California especially, is that if God requires us to get atonement for the condition that we find ourselves in through inheritance, natural birth, then it means that God holds us personally responsible for possessing this unclean body. Now on the surface, this may sound logical, but in the light of the oracles of God, it is illogical. And let me caution uh, the class too. Let me ask this question. Does anyone here understand and believe that when you go through the waters of baptism now this doesn't make you fundamentally wrong if you answer wrong here it's just a misfortune an unfortunate way of stating it one which we should change if we can who here would say that we are forgiven Adam's sin when we're baptized is there anyone that would put it that way 
God doesn't hold us personally responsible for having committed Adam's sin, so we don't have to be forgiven for it. But we suffer the effects that he uh, suffered because like produces like. When he became a death-doomed person, all of his uh, descendants became just like him. What condemnation passed on him also passed upon them. We've seen this from Romans 5 and so forth. But we're not forgiven Adam's sin. We receive atonement for the unclean nature that we inherited from Adam. But we're not forgiven for his sin because we're not held personally accountable. But we do possess the same nature that he fell to. His was an unclean nature that he fell to. And any contacting of defilement that was uh, uh, known, any kind that was known, since the casting out of the garden required an atonement for it. Let's prove this. Now, if the uh, principle is correct that we're asked to accept and believe, that anything that is not our fault and that is not charged personally to us, we don't need any atonement for it, then explain to me the ordinance that God gave through Moses in the 12th chapter of Leviticus. Verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman hath conceived seed and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, that is, after the birth. According to the days of the separation for her infirmity, shall she be unclean. So here was a contracting of uncleanness in order to even fulfill the first injunction that God gave Adam and Eve before He even gave them the law concerning the tree. Be fruitful and multiply. So in the act of multiplying and in the act of uh, uh, reproduction, the woman became unclean. Well, did God hold her personally responsible? Didn't He give that injunction to the human race? Be fruitful and multiply. Where Did we see uh, multiplication stop with Adam and Eve? If it had, we wouldn't be here. Okay. Then she should be unclean. And verse 3, In the eighth day of the flesh, and in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. Uh, the very uh, number of days that we find in the years of Christ, don't we? Thirty-three years was his length. And this is, this is in the male, of course. Uh, why the longer time in the female? Well, the female is the bride of Christ. And Christ, uh, of course, uh, after, at the end of thirty-three uh, uh, day years, weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score and six days. And when the days of her purif purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon and a turtle dove for a sin offering under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the Lord. Verse 7. Notice very... And how, how fitting that this should be verse 7. Uh, of course, uh, God didn't give... Uh, passage numbers in the, uh, in the original scriptures, but how fitting that it fell this way in our version. It's such a meaningful number, and it's a total number. In verse 7, "...who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath borne a male or a female." Now, do you mean to tell me that God charges a, an offense against that woman because He required an atonement? No, it was simply the fact of uncleanness. It doesn't matter why, where or how it came. It's not charged to her as though she were guilty of something. No, she was carrying out the first injunction given to uh, Adam and Eve, and that was to propagate the race. 
But in the process, she contacted defilement. And she was alienated, as it were, from the, the whole congregation. She wasn't allowed back into the contact with the congregation of God or the holy things until an atonement for the contracted uncleanness. Well, some say, well, is it scriptural? Even stronger than that. It isn't scripture, so, scriptural. Some will say that we're unclean. Where does it say that? Well, Job 14 and 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? How about Job 25 and 4? How can he be clean that is born of a woman? My goodness, of whom was Jesus born? Galatians 4 and 4. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Therefore, He was unclean. And I, I'm sorry if this offends some. But you know, I find that, that the truth is enhanced by this terminology. Are you impressed by someone that didn't come in an unclean uh, 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 nature? Someone that was clean, that was not... And the Scriptures say that he uh, suffered from all the infirmities we do. He was in all points like his we. But are you impressed by someone that can't sin and doesn't sin? Does it impress you that angels don't sin? Well, the very nature they possess makes it impossible for them to do anything else. Sin is not a part. It's not one of the attributes of the immortal state. Death is the wages of sin. Do you find death passed upon angels? Absolutely not. Once, once the uh, perfect divine nature state has been reached, sin is a thing of the past. Sin is known to us as being connected with this fallen state that we have from Adam. And Luke... 20, 35 through 37, we're told that we're going to be like the angels and can die no more. And 2 Peter 1 and 4, we're told that we're going to be partakers, equal sharers of the divine nature, which is God's nature. By the way, is there anybody that feels that uh, the immortal state is a bodiless state? Uh, I've heard this expressed, and unfortunately in the brotherhood. Uh... You know, God says, My fury came up in my face. The incense was sweet-smelling savor in my nostrils. The Ten Commandments written with the finger of God. Uh, we're told in uh, Hebrews uh, 1 and uh, 3, I believe, 4, that uh, Jesus was the express image of His Father. And we're going to be partakers of the divine nature. Are you going to be bodiless? Didn't the Apostle Paul say, We look for the Lord, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who shall change this vile body that it might be fashioned like unto His? Well, Peter says we're going to be partakers of the divine nature, and that's God Himself. So don't speak of the future immortal state as a bodiless nature. Don't speak of the divine nature, which is God's nature, as a bodiless nature. It's foolish. It's unscriptural. But yet I've heard it. Okay. Uh, back to... Uh, Oh, there's so many we could look at. Time is not going to permit it. Uh, let's, let's look at the case of the leper. You will find him from uh, chapter 13 and dealt with uh, in different manners. Even the house in which he uh, lived had to uh, receive a cleansing. And all through the 14th chapter, there's an atonement made for the leper. Why? You know, there was nothing more detestable down through the Old Testament times and even the times of the New Testament and the time of Jesus and the apostles. A leper was detestable. They were even put uh, 
uh, off to where they wouldn't come in contact with people, although sometimes they'd make it into town, and people ran for their lives. They didn't want to be touched. It's a perfect symbol of immortality. It's uncleanness, I mean of mortality. It's uncleanness in its uh, worst state. And it's fitting that it, is, that it needs atonement because it is a symbol of mortality. If anyone had leprosy, he was known to be doomed to death. And if we have mortality, sooner or later we're doomed to death. Unless it is the one exception in the case of those who are alive when Jesus returns and they don't have to die simply because of that exception of being one of the living when Jesus returns. Because the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, Behold, I show you a, a mystery. Well, he says in verse 50, uh, <clears throat> This I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, uh, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be made, or we shall all be made alive. Well, this is saying that there will be believers who will not ever see the death that passed upon man, uh, Adam, and which almost all generations have fallen into death. Well, there will be one exception, and that's those of us who are fortunate enough, and I believe there are some of us living, uh, sitting in this room that will be alive when he comes. That's those of whom he was speaking. But getting back to the leper, do you mean to tell me that God held personally against the leper and blamed him for possessing his unclean state of leprosy? Why, it's the most foolish thing I ever heard of in my life. But it was unclean nevertheless. And if a person was cleansed of his leprosy, he was never permitted to come back into the contact with any of the things of this holy nation, this covenanted nation, especially the system of worship unless he received an atonement for that unclean state that he had contacted or contracted. So away with the unscriptural and foolish statement that nothing that we're not blamed for needs atonement. Anything that is unclean needs atonement. And I wish we had time to go through the many, many instances that the things which, uh, which we find and the things written aforetime for our learning where it was necessitated that an atonement be uh, effected when no personal guilt was involved. Okay, in Old Testament times, <clears throat> the unclean state, and as Brother Robert said, of uh, our inheritance being the death-doomed children of Adam, that was effected by the burnt offering because it had a connotation of sin flesh. And who can enter in to covenant with God if you're uncovenanted? Of course, there was never a time when the, the Jew uh, did not have at least a limited, the temporal covenant with God. But it was a progressive thing. He didn't enter the uh, eternal covenant until he obtained belief and faith and offered a burnt offering. Because how can you enter in to covenant relationship with God without receiving all of the necessary atonements? And uh, no matter if those atonements were offered while you're still in unbelief, as the priests did continually, uh, you, you could not receive an atonement for sin flesh without an understanding of Christ and all of these offerings. And all Jews simply did not have it. And that's why that it is a mistake. And I don't believe too many today uh, hold this misconception. But I have in the past uh, talked to brethren and sisters 
who felt that the entire nation of Israel was uh, uh, was slated for resurrection. It simply is not so. In the 78th Psalm, in the condensed history of Israel, God, uh, uh, the psalmist says that God was merciful to the nation of Israel. I think this is, very, uh, this is verse 39. That God was merciful with Israel. Why? He said because he realized they were but flesh. A wind, and this is that word rock, which refers to person sometimes, a wind which passeth away and cometh not again. You see, this punctuates the uh, statement of the psalmist in Psalm 49 and 20. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. We have a tendency to apply this to only to Gentiles, uh, those who were not Israelites. But it's true of any who, do, who don't understand. No matter what position of honor we occupy, if the oracles of God which were contained in the Old Testament were not believed and faith in them attained, then a person, including a Jew, was like the beast that perished. <clears throat> what about the Old Testament, or the law contained in the Old Testament? Doesn't Paul tell the Galatians in chapter 3, the law was our schoolmaster to, to bring us to Christ? What does a schoolmaster do? Well, if he's any good, he instructs you, doesn't he? He, he? he gives you knowledge of things that is necessary for you to know. Well, a schoolmaster regarding the, the oracles of God would do the same thing. He would, uh, a Jew who was properly taught by the law of Moses and every aspect of truth was attainable there. And Paul says this in what we read before, for all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction of righteous, and righteousness and so forth. That's why it was a schoolmaster. It could make you wise into salvation. All of these things we've been talking about today, the necessity of atonement for contracted uncleanness, including, the, the, as Brother Robert says, the natural state of being death-doomed children of Adam needed atonement. It even made the tabernacle, as we found from Leviticus 16 and 16, made the tabernacle unclean. They're, having been produced by them, having been produced by cursed material as the entire earth and everything on it was cursed in Eden, atonement was needed. But he says there in Leviticus 16 and 16, make an atonement for it because of the uncleanness. That's one. You can't say that both of those aspects... Uh, refer to one and the same thing because there's a conjunction between them showing you've got two things. You've got one thing and then a further thing. The uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their sins. So, you've got it here. Uncleanness and transgression. Well, how about the New Testament? We've only got five minutes. So, and I'm going to leave this up there. Uh, and you can jot it down later. We have seen in Old Testament times that there was a necessity for atonement for uncleanness of natural state and atonement for personal sin. Well, Brother Roberts, I called your attention to it, had said to Brother Andrew, the Scriptures say almost nothing in the gospel and the, the apostolic proclamation of the gospel of a need or any atonement for our unclean sinful state. Well, number two here is a 
a series of passages that deal with our unclean inherited state and the acts of baptism. And you will notice there is numerous and maybe more so than there is references to personal sin. You know, we need atonement for our, our unclean nature before we need it for our personal sins. Would anyone have trouble with that? If we're death-doomed children of Adam, we're death-doomed at birth. And if you will in your leisure turn up uh, <clears throat> Psalms 58 and 3. Might be, no, it's 58 and 3. It says, The wicked are estranged from where? From the womb. Now, what do you mean the wicked? If you will take the words of Dr. Thomas, and this can be borne out scripturally, concerning the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. He shows that the term the wicked, and it's true, I assure you, the term the wicked in the scripture most often refers to the world at large, those uncovenanted ones. And uh, <clears throat> while it's true that as a mass, they are wicked. Psalms uh, 57 and 20 says, The wicked are like a troubled sea. He's talking about the entire world. Are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waves cast up dirt and mire. So he's talking about the mass of humanity. They are estranged from the womb. In other words, the moment we're born, we need atonement. And then uh, because of, of uh, we yield to those tendencies that are in us as a result of uh, everyone through the top part, I'll move it up some. I almost ran out of transparency. So, let us take very quickly a couple of these and prove, and I might run a couple of minutes over, but I won't run any more than that. Let's go again to Romans, the uh, uh, 6th chapter. And if you want to keep writing, it's fine. I'll quote it and uh, read also from Colossians. And prove that there is a connotation of that which is fleshly in the waters of baptism where we receive the atonement. So at the risk of being repetitious, I'll quote again from Romans 6. Know you not that as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, <clears throat> that like as Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And if we are, have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be of resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him. This is not personal sin. Uh, in Colossians 3 and 9, we have the old man, one thing, and his deeds another. It says, Lie not one to another, Colossians 3 and 9, seeing that you have put off the old man, that's one thing, with his deeds. Don't you see two aspects here? You put off the old man with his deeds. So our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Now he says to the Colossians in chapter 2, and every one of these will, will bear out what I'm saying. He uh, speaks of the atonement that has uh, been realized in baptism, and we feel free to use the term baptism because he so uses it. Colossians 2, and beginning with verse 11. Now let's begin in 9. 
For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power, in whom ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in, now notice, in putting off the body of, and if you'll take a little red pen or something and mark through the sins of, because it doesn't belong there. It's not in the Greek. And in the margin, Schofield says to omit the sins of. Why? Because it's been added by man. Because men don't understand the aspect of the atonement as it has a dual need. So, let's read it again. In putting off the body of the flesh, here's that old man, the death-doomed child of Adam, with this unclean, uh, defiled condition. And it's by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I'd like to ask anyone in here, do you feel that you get your atonement in the waters of baptism from the act that was performed on Christ at eight days old by the literal circumcision of the flesh of His foreskin? It's absolutely ridiculous. That does not affect your atonement. What is circumcision? It's a cutting off. Well, you will find in the prophecy of the 70 weeks in the ninth chapter of Daniel that in the midst of the week shall Messiah be cut off. That's what this term circumcision means here. The crucifixion of Christ is the place that we get our atonement when we do that which is representative of that event. And he, he shows it by saying, buried with Him in baptism, which is a symbol of His death, burial, and resurrection in which ye are also risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who raised Him from the dead. Now notice two things here that had accomplished in, been accomplished in baptism. It's all in verse 13. And you being dead in your sins, that's one, they'd been dead in their sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Their flesh hadn't been cut off. I'm not talking about the literal rite of Jewish circumcision, but the symbolic act which represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul told the Ephesians, you hath he made alive or quickened, who were dead. And here's the reason they were dead, the same reason the Colossians had been dead. Two reasons. In your sins and the fact that you had not accomplished an atonement for your sin-flesh condition and that you had not symbolically reenacted the crucifixion of Christ. Your flesh had not been circumcised. So these are the aspects of the atonement, brothers and sisters, that I pray that we will all refuse to give up. Let us pray for reunion and help where we can, help the brethren accomplish it. But let's obey the Apostle Paul when we speak the things that become sound doctrine.